0: Good afternoon. My name is Stephanie Younger Moet, and I'm president of the board of the Colombian American Association. These are fraught times in Colombia, and we have received enormous interest on programming. And as a result of today begins a series of events that we hope to continue until next year's presidential elections that focuses on understanding the various dynamics in the country and providing balanced and thoughtful analysis on what has proved and what will continue to be a very fluid and volatile environment. This panel today is a terrific one and i hope everyone finds it both a productive and insightful discussion so let me turn this over to our moderator for today camila zuluada camila thank you stephanie good afternoon to everyone thank you for the invitation to moderate this panel we have uh, wonderful people joining us to understand what is going on in colombia and uh, we i mean a lot of us are trying to understand what is happening in our country. We're trying to find solutions and answers and that's what are we going to do today. That's why I want to introduce our three panelists. One, I'm gonna introduce first the women. That is Elizabeth Dickinson, Senior Analyst, Colombian and International Crisis Group. Elizabeth, welcome. And I'm so happy to be able to talk to you today and to discuss about what is going on in Colombia. Thank you for the invitation. And also it's here with us, Juan Carlos Echeverri, founding partner of Econcept, former Colombian Minister of Finance, and I will say that he is going to run for the presidency. So Juan Carlos, welcome. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Hi, Camila. Thank you for having me.
0: I don't know if you're running already and if you're announcing everyone that you're going to be a candidate.
1: So, Is this part part of the panel (laughs) topics or not? (laughs) No. Okay, good. So I don't
0: have to And we have uh, Paul Angelo, which is a fellow for Latin American Studies Council of Foreign Relations. Paul, thank you for being with us, and it's it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you as well today.
2: No, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you
0: for having me. Okay, so first of all, I would like to ask uh, Elizabeth about uh, the reason of the protest, and also if you think if this is a continuation of the pro of the protest that we saw. In uh, 2019, or if you see any difference between what we're seeing right now and what we saw back in uh, in 2019. So thank you again
3: for the opportunity to be here and also to speak with um, all of you today. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I'm based here in Bogota, and I guess my uh, the answers that I'll that I'll give here and the discussion that I I hope I can can offer is based on. Uh, several weeks of really running through the country, trying to speak with protesters and and, and mm-hmm. others and, and try to understand what's happening. So I've been in Cali last week. I was in Meta and Guaviare, Putomayo, uh, Cucuta, and um, so have been trying to get a sense of, of sort of where the pulse is on, on these protests. So I think it, the answer to your question is really that they are a continuation, but they're also uh, so, uh, there, there's also a break. There's some, there are new elements to the protests that make them more significant and in many ways more difficult to unravel. <laughs> so they are a continuation, I think, in the sense that they draw on some of the primary concerns that Col- Colombians came to the street with in 2019 as well largely uh, based on social inequality, a feeling that the economic system is exclusionary and doesn't offer access, frustrations about the ability to get education, uh, to rise through the labor market. I mean, a sort of uh, frustration with the class system that I think um, has started to to show in really to wear on on sort of particularly the, the working class. So that was sort of the found the foundation of the protest in 2019. What's happened since then of course is a year of pandemic that has hit as we all know Colombia very difficult year uh, in terms of health health outcomes but also in terms of economic outcomes with on and off quarantines for almost a year uh, the private sector has been devastated informal labor particularly which of course as we know for lower and middle class workers has is is a lifeline has really been devastated and so we see the levels of poverty and inequality just become far more striking, but also visible. I mean, one of the things that the pandemic did was make it very clear what are the stakes of being poor in Colombia. poor people in living in the lower income stratas had much worse health outcomes, were far more likely to become infected with COVID and far more likely to, to have fatal cases uh, because of a lack of access to healthcare, but also because they simply couldn't isolate. They couldn't stay home. They had to leave their home every day to, to find a way to feed uh, their, their houses, their children themselves. So I think this sort of brought uh, to the forefront, I think a lot of these social and economic concerns added to that, and, and it's erupted several times in the, in the interim, including during the pandemic between 2019 and today, is I think frustration with a conflictive and a frustrating relationship, let's say, between communities and the police. And this has manifested itself in several ways, accusations of brutality on some sides, uh, uh, accusations of vandalism on other sides. But the, the, the fundamental reality is that this relationship is broken, that there isn't trust between the two sides, and it does go both ways. That the community has a lack of trust in the policing infrastructure and the police in turn, I think, are wary of the community because of the threats that they've also faced in that direction. So this is sort of the context where we are. But I want to note two other differences that make these protests very different from the context in 2019. The first one is that it's a far more diverse cross section of society. In 2019, the protests were really dominated by university students, uh, labor unions, sort of uh, organized syndicates. So there was a sort of structure in a way to the protests. Today, we have a much more broad cross-section. You have four more youth who have neither who are neither studying nor working. You have uh, older people who have come to the streets in, in, in larger numbers, and the elderly um, underprivileged. I think you really have a cross-section and including you have more members of the so-called middle class, which have struggled to hold on to that position in the middle class during the pandemic. The second notable difference that I think is very important is that today the protests are not only urban, Of course, that's the most visible manifestation, but we have protests in 30 of 32 Colombia's departments. So this is also a rural phenomenon. We've had campesinos, eh, Afro-Indigenous communities, um, you know, transport companies, all mobilizing in rural areas, blocking intercity roads, but also just eh, manifesting their frustration at a local level. This is, again, much less visible, but in many ways it may be the harder part to unwind. Because these protests are very deeply entrenched and rooted in local grievances that won't be able to be addressed at a national level of of negotiation, they stand to really reconfigure the construction socially of the society in the years going forward.
0: Okay, I wanted this to be a conversation. So if Juan Carlos or Paul or you, Elizabeth, have anything to say about other comments that the other panelists are saying, you're more than welcome. And also I wanted to say to the people that is watching us right now that we're gonna have Q&A. So if you have any questions, you can send it through the text in the in the Zoom platform. But following what you said, Elizabeth, I wanted to ask Paul about Cali, because yes, we have seen protests in the whole territory, but Cali has been the epicenter of these protests uh, in Colombia, why Cali? What is happening in the Pacific? Why is there the most difficult situation that we're facing in, a, in our territory?
2: Sure, thank you, Camila. And I would actually, I would defer to, to Elizabeth on this point because she was most recently in Cali. Uh, it's been a couple of years since I've been back to the to the, the city, but I, I have spent much of my career working in Colombia's Pacific. Um, so I can yeah. speak to more structural uh, issues at play. Um, and you know what, I, I, I would say that, I, I, you know, as you've mentioned, Cali is the de facto capital for the Pacific region of Colombia, and the Pacific really is a place where all of Colombia's challenges converge. You've got uh, poverty, you've got uh, a long-standing abandonment by the state, uh, incredibly poor infrastructure. There are only two paved roads that communicate the entire Pacific coast, which is nearly a thousand miles long with the rest of the Colombian uh, interior. Uh, and, and of course, insecurity. Uh, Cali has always been a major logistical hub for drug trafficking organizations, and. Uh, insurgent groups and paramilitary groups given its uh, geographic placement between areas of the country where coca cultivation is is high um, historically in the llanos orientales and in uh, the parque nacional de las hermosas and the southern part of the country with the pacific which over the past decade and a half has become an area of the country uh, through which much of colombia of colombia's cocaine production uh, exits for central america and mexico Um, and so because of the, the, the vast insecurity in the Pacific region, we've also seen waves of displacement from rural parts uh, to Cali, And I, I think, uh, and I, I would love to hear Elizabeth's comments on this, but I think that Cali is, as well as become an epicenter for this protest movement, um, given the, the informality in which many communities exist in, in a city like Kali. Um, and, and, you know, I, I would also just offer that you know, the Colombian government has made the argument time and again, that these protests are, are really, at the, what's at the core of these protests is uh, you know, meddling by neighbor, um, uh, Nicolas Maduro from neighboring Venezuela, Castro Chavismo, and, and remnants of, of, of the FARC, which is now, uh, of course, um, disbanded, but there are remain dissident structures and, of course, the ELN uh, that are exacerbating the challenges that are that are faced by the state and by security forces uh, in Cali. And, and I would just offer that, yes, for, for a very long time, uh, you've had you know, the ELN trying to take advantage of protest movements, trying to infiltrate. Um, but, you know, I would just like to, to note that uh, if, there, if there was going to, if the ELN or the FARC dissidents were going to have a, a, a place in Colombia where this would be possible, among the major cities, Cali would be it. Um, given given the persistence of illegal armed structures in the rural parts of Cauca and Valle Cauca, uh, but that is not to say that that I, I believe that that you know the, these these uh, illegal armed groups or the insurg- these insurgents groups represent uh, the majority of, of protesters, or even even you know I would say that they represent a significant minority, uh, and p- perhaps are probably behind some of the vandalism that we've seen. Uh, but but really, I think to to ascribe what we're seeing in Colombia today to those kinds of groups really. Uh, avoids recognition of the, the broad sense of malestar social um, that Elizabeth referred to in her initial remarks.
0: Okay you said something and that there's, that's a question that I wanted to ask to all of you so I'm going to start uh, with uh, Juan Carlos about what you said on uh, Venezuela because the government, uh, President Duque, is trying to tell the international community that we have been pressured by Venezuela and there's a, a lot of people here in our territory that are trying to impose the Castro Chavismo for the next elections. And I wanted to ask you, the three of you, if you think that's an important part of the protest that we have been seeing this year. And I will start with you, uh, Mr. Echeverri.
1: Thank you, Camila. Well, first, the answer is, I don't know. It's very difficult mm-hmm. to know whether there is direct involvement of the of government or in through through indirect channels. What is true probably uh, we can differentiate two big movements. One that is let's say the students and union labor unions which are uh, massive protesters which represent probably a a wide constituency of people with grievances with things that have been signed in in previous uh, agreements and that has not been uh, uh, actually um, fulfilled in the past by the government, and, and those grievances are, are probably justified. The government uh, in Colombia, not, not this government, probably all government in Colombia, have been too, too fast to sign a lot of conditions in previous problems, and, and then you go after year after year, and you see that many of those, of those uh, agreements were not really uh, held up but there is another another group different from students and from labor unions another group which is more uh, let's say is an undercurrent darker uh, with a with a stronger uh, capabilities of uh, of creating blockades and vandalizing private property and vandalizing infrastructure who actually mingle mingle in the in the difficult situations they are very well organized, they're probably well financed. There has been some reports in the press according to which they are a, they, they, there is a, a, a procurement for them in terms of food, in terms of health. And the question is how wh- what is how that is financed. Uh, I have some, some backup developed calculations, and, and that tell me that you you have, as of now, you those groups needed financing around $10 million. In one Mm -hmm. month in order to create 300 places in in different cities and in in other like 40 or 50 places in roads uh, blockades during three weeks that costs a lot of money so Mm -hmm. question who is financing that and for what purpose and and then uh, i connect with the the answer that paul was giving is why in cali and then cali can be considered partially the the border town between between uh, cauca Nariño, Putumayo, Caquetá, and let's say more mainstream economic activity of Colombia, where, where the yeah the, the Pacific coast and the southern uh, departamentos or states uh, have a stronger presence of illegal actors financed with uh, uh, narco trafficking, etc. So there is this undercurrent, which is very difficult to know how much involvement is of that, uh, that from the south and. Your question was well. What about Venezuela and these other uh, sources of financing? So it's impossible to know, but but there is there is this suspicious suspiciousness that 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 there could be involvement that there's uh, money uh, financing the the infrastructure for for vandalism, for blockages in in, 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 uh, and, and curtailing the whole system of supply of Colombia which is really destabilizing. So we have come from a, a social movement from students and labor unions to a, a deeply destabilizing force with, a, with, with the capability of having presence in many cities and many roads in Colombia, which has uh, escalated this. So a uh, question, is that uh, related to Venezuela or not? We, will, we don't know for sure. Is there suspicion mm-hmm. that there is uh, some financing and some support? Yeah, there is. Uh, but not only from there, also from the, from the cocaine cartels acting in the Pacific, uh, 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 the Pacific Coast of Colombia and in the southern part of Colombia. So there are many different forces, probably, I cannot say because this is not a fact, but it is suspicious, uh, that, that, uh, that there are many forces, many layers of this, of this uh, going on uh, on top of the students and the labor unions.
0: Let me ask this question to, to Elizabeth because, Elizabeth, you have been in the streets, you have been in the whole territory. And uh, who is financing and uh, for what purpose the protests that we, are, that we have been seen, seeing during this whole month in, uh, in our country? Do you think, as the government said, that it might be like a far left force internationally that wants to destabilize Colombia as they did in Chile? and end up with the reform of the constitution?
3: So the protests, um, as I've seen them throughout the country do not really require that much or any Mm -hmm. financing. And most of the people who are involved with them, many of them uh, are neither working nor studying, feel that they have nothing to lose. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe we're eating one or two meals a day. Maybe now because of community donations, they're eating three meals a day at a communal soup kitchen, but they're certainly not being paid to protest. They're not being paid to, to stand you know, every night in the same place, but they also aren't working. So it's not that they're losing an econom- uh, their income stream either. There's a level of desperation I think we really have to absorb here. These people don't need anyone to motivate them to protest. There is a broad discontent throughout the Colombian society. So. I think, you know, stepping back, I want to make a clear distinction here, which is what's motivating the protest and what's who's taking advantage of the protest, because it's very different. It's very different. um, It's very important to understand which is which, because if we confuse them, um, we, we can risk escalating the crisis. So what's motivating the protests? Are these social factors, this frustration with the economic situation, with a lack of social mobility, with all the things that we've already mentioned. Now, are there actors taking advantage of the situation? Absolutely, but you cannot tell me that armed groups are putting people on the street because it's not true. Uh, Armed groups, are they taking advantage of the situation, for example, to traffic or, for example, to commit criminal acts? Absolutely, because they would be crazy not to. This is a moment of extreme uproar and uh, social confusion. And so, of course, the actors that are going to be agile enough to take advantage of that situation are going to be in the illicit economy. I think there's a very clear way to understand this, and I, I, I hope that this is a, an example that I, I think can illustrate what we're talking about, because there are different types of vandalism. And I want to talk about this, because, not to justify any of the vandalism, but to explain why it's happening. So there's vandalism that happens because of anger. So I I lived in the Middle East for 10 years before I worked in Colombia. I lived through the entire Arab Spring. And I can tell you that young angry men can destroy a lot of things without anyone paying (laughs) them to do it or having any political reason behind it. So a lot Mm -hmm. of vandalism is truly anger. A second category of vandalism, and again, I say this not to justify it, but to explain it, is political Mm -hmm. vandalism. So an example, in the blockades in Cali, the larger blockades, for example, the uh, Puerto Resistencia, Uh, which is one of the largest. If you go to that area, you'll notice something remarkable, which is that all of the local vendors, the community stores, the little tiendas on the corner, they haven't been touched, their windows are not broken, they have no graffiti on them, they have not been vandalized. Why? Because the vandalism has been targeted towards multinationals, larger chains, that that community particularly feels like are infringing on their local economic and food security. So there are rules that are actually imposed within the blockade that you can't touch the local vendors. And so, yes, has there been looting and rioting and burning in the other stores like D.U.N.O., bueno Exito? Absolutely. They're destroyed. Mm-hmm. But you look at a local vendor and they haven't been touched. That's political vandalism. Again, it doesn't justify it, but it explains at least what's behind it. I think the third type of vandalism, and this is the type that we're that I think has gotten the most attention, is criminal vandalism, taking advantage of the situation to commit criminal acts. And of course, there are examples of this from Cali. For example, highly sophisticated robberies of gas stations in which they extract the entire equipment from the station and take it out. That of course is not protesters. That is an illegal interest that's taking advantage of a chaotic situation and the inability for the security forces to be present in the area at that moment to commit a criminal act.
0: But, but Elizabeth, I heard uh, in an interview, one of the guys from the first line saying that during this month of protest, they have achieved more than the FARC achieving 50 years. So I was wondering when I heard him saying that if the way of changing the the political structure in our country is changing now it's not on the countryside with uh, armed groups now they're trying to change the political system the uh, the economy system with these protests in the street are we facing kind of the same it's just that we are seeing it in, in different scenarios
3: I definitely think it's notable, for example, that we had a piece of court that really largely spoke to the rural areas, we haven't really had that similar social conversation that addresses the root frustrations of society at an urban level. And so absolutely, I think some of these frustrations are a reflection of that. I also think that something that's quite clear here on the grounds is that these protests are really only possible because we're in a post conflict scenario for so many years these questions were repressed by this sort of collective um, deference to the fact that there was an existential conflict in Colombia, the government against the FARC. That conflict now is, we've turned the page on that uh, largely. And so all of these other issues that have been building for decades have actually started to come to the surface. And they're able to do so politically. So in many ways, this protest actually represents a political evolution, a positive one, that allows Colombia to have conversations that haven't been possible for many decades.
1: I think that's a very optimistic way of putting it. <laughs> so it, that, was, that, 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 would, that would be like say, I don't know. What Camila said, I think is, is, is very telling, is uh, there are many people, and I think that's the case actually, that, it is, that say that this, one, this month has been more uh, impactful on Colombian economy and Colombian institutions than 50 years in the jungle. Why? Because after this month, basically the the whole supply chain of the the country, the way people get to work, I mean, normal, ordinary workers get to their firms to work, just a second, um, is curtailed. People are not able to go to work. Especially in Cali, but in, in many other cities during. Mm-hmm. Second, uh, uh, so firms are not able to produce. They have their debts piling up. They cannot pay their debts, right? But because they, they, can, they are not selling. They cannot take the products to their clients, to their buyers. Uh, they, the port of the seaport of Buenaventura is closed, which is the main supplier of, of foreign imp- of imports to Colombia. And then the, the, you, you you put the state in a, a, the, the the economy as a whole and the Colombian institutions and the government uh, on its knees. And that's something that the FARC couldn't do could have, was, wasn't able to do in 50 years. Mm-hmm. Now right. saying that this is a good, a, a, just a continuation a nice continuation of a good movement, uh, I think is really optimistic. I don't think that 50 million people now has to have to uh, be, get out of work. Hundreds of thousands of firms, especially small firms of two or three people been broke. Uh, Thousands, uh, tens of thousands of of medium-sized firms broke, right? Uh, Many people been uh, hungry, right? Because of this. Uh, So is this a nice continuation of the FARC grievances against the government? Is this what we need to for, for the Colombian government to go to its knees and, and, and negotiate? Uh, this is basically a cruel way of dealing with uh, long-standing problems that will, will last forever or will last for a long time and need five years, 10 years to solve. I think that we, we come from a, a very harmful period since nineteen uh, since in 20, 2015, where we had the oil crisis. So uh, the economy suffered a big, uh, a substantial economic crisis. Uh, and then we came to the pandemic, one year and a half of crisis and suffering, social suffering, biological sufferings, people dying, people being sick. And now, of course, if you add to these two crises between 2015 and today, that of course uh, uh, creates a lot of suffering, a uh, very justifiable um, uh, grievances of many people against the economic situation. But that doesn't mean that uh, the way of doing of dealing with this is crippling the whole economic system, ca- causing even more suffering in order to prove that uh, that uh, this is a nice continuation of the FARC uh, fighting now in the city. So uh, and in in our roads, I think that the, there, there is a there is a, a fracture, an analytical fracture between 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 what the what the country is suffering, which is terrible, is terrible. The consequences of this that will be terrible. And if this is the best way to handle uh, uh, social economic problems in Colombia. So I, I, I kind of disagree with this, with this rosy picture of, this is nice that this is happening. It's kind of nice because it, it, it forces people to suffer. And then the, the, all the polity of Colombia to collapse and, and, and the economy as well, it kind of bringing it to, to a brink of collapse. I, I have to disagree with that.
0: But, but the international community is seeing it that way, the way Elizabeth uh, put it on the table. And uh, the international community put their eyes on uh, Colombia because of the riots, but also because of the excess of the force using by the police. And uh, one of the things that the people is asking in the streets is to reform the police. If they didn't act in such a repressive way, probably the international community wouldn't be saying what we heard about Elizabeth, that they truly believe, I I I understand that you don't agree with what she said, but the international community in many places are thinking and are seeing things that way. That's why I wanted to ask you, Paul, talking about the police, talking about the repression, talking about the images that the whole world saw of uh, how they treated the people and the students in the streets, do you think it is mandatory and the government should that tramit like a police reform, should we get into it to try to solve what we're seeing right now or not?
2: Sure, and and I I think you're absolutely right that the protests Mm -hmm. in Colombia have legs internationally speaking because the conversation that's being had in Colombia is the same conversation we had last year in the United States about Mm -hmm. police brutality in the wake of uh, George uh, George Floyd's killing uh, and the the rise of the protest movement and the organization of, of protests led by Black Lives Matter here. Likewise, what we're seeing particularly on social media are linkages being made between activist groups in Colombia and activist groups elsewhere. Uh, I've seen graffiti from coming out of Cali in support of Palestinians, graffiti in support of Chileans, graffiti in support of Black Lives Matter here in the United States. And so I think uh, that this is having an effect of of pushing the conversation or putting the conversation front and center in places like the United States and, and even in Europe because of the international solidarity. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think to that point, you know, what distinguishes the United States and Colombia from other countries in the world uh, is, is the, the fact that we, we are democracies and we strive to enforce police accountability. And I think that that's something that has been completely lacking in the case of Colombia, um, in, in, in the, at least in terms of the rhetoric coming out of the government. It took the Duque administration about two weeks into the protests to at least signal with its rhetoric in the direction of denouncing uh, excessive use of force by police officers and signaling in the direction of accountability um, but but to your broader question about the reform of the police I mean I, I think it's absolutely necessary it's a something that I expressed in a in a recent op-ed for the Washington post um, I don't think that any presidential candidate going into 2022 in Colombia can have a serious conversation about uh, the political situation in the country without advocating for some kind of reform of the police, and it's something that the Centro Democrático has already tried to do, has presented a number of projects, some legislation in in Congress focused on reforming the police, but that those reforms would merely tweak the way that the police is currently structured, Uh, and what we're really talking about is a a, sort of an institutional shift. The Colombian National Police is an organization that since the 1950s has been a part of the Ministry of Defense, uh, and it, there was a, a, an instinct in the early 2010s as the, the country was negotiating peace with the, the FARC that the police would become something else in a post-conflict period. And that really never came to fruition the, for, for a lot of reasons, uh, most significant of which is that I think really President Santos, who had expressed an interest in creating a Ministry of Citizen Security or relocating the National Police under the Ministry of the Interior, just simply ran out of time. Uh, But it's a project that hasn't been taken seriously by the current administration. Uh, And and I do think that if we are talking about delivering accountability for crimes, we can no longer treat instances of police uh, brutality in a military justice system, for one. Um, But secondarily, uh, the the Colombian National Police have a formation and have an indoctrination that was very much focused on an internal armed conflict and on internal enemies. Uh, and so, to, the, to Elizabeth's points about the, the stigmatization of protesters, uh, I think in many ways it's it's very difficult for the average beat cop out in the streets trying to deal with protest to differentiate between a protester, a vandal, and an insurgent. Um, and, and in order to in order to usher in a process that that, that trains police to make those kinds of necessary distinctions. Uh, I, I don't think it, that the Colombian government can in good faith retain the national police as an entity or a sub entity of the Ministry of Defense.
0: This, this is truly use of force that we have seen in some cases from the police uh, to protesters. Do you think this might affect the international relations of uh, Colombia, maybe with the US? Do you think that would have an effect on the re- the international and the foreign relations?
2: Well, you know, I think what's having an effect is not necessarily the fact that police Abuses exist because they exist in every democratic system. They exist here in the United States and we're not demanding uh, purity. Uh, but what we are demanding is that civilian government a- in Colombia take uh, very seriously the accusations of, of excessive use of force and, and that the, the, the civilian government in- actually delivers justice for them. And, and I think, um, you know, something that has become a rallying cry in Colombia, uh, particularly in this issue, of police brutality is the case of Dylan Cruz, who was killed by uh, a beanbag bullet that was shot by Ismad uh, in 2019 protests. Uh, that is a case that was, after much deliberation, was referred to the military justice system because it was seen to have taken place, the, the, the act of uh, excessive force was seen to have taken place within the context of the police's performance of his duties. Um, and unfortunately, as that case that, that case two years later still sits in the military justice system. Uh, and so for, for the, the 28 or so uh, officer-involved uh, uh, incidents or abuses that have been documented um, by Human Rights Watch in this latest wave of protests, uh, you know, the, the Colombian government must uh, absolutely exact accountability for them Uh, And and, and I think that, more than anything, will ensure that the Colombian government remains in good standing uh, with the United States and other leading democracies in the world.
0: We are already receiving a lot of questions from the audience, but I want you to remind that, so if you want to make more questions, we are receiving it here from the Q&A. But Paul, you said something about the 2022 election. And that no candidate can go to the 22 election without talking about the political reform. So then, Elizabeth, I wanted to ask you about that. What is the role, the political election, the presidential election that we are going to face next year is affecting the protest that we have seen uh, on this year, on 2021? Yes, I think one of the major
3: impacts actually right now is that it's making it harder to look for a negotiated exit to the to the situation. And because all sides politically are thinking about how their behavior will reflect on their election results, rather than necessarily thinking about, you know, what is an exit or or, or what concessions might I or others need to make in order to, to, to make this happen. Um, so, I think that's sort of the number one um, sort of impact that it's having right now. And when you go and, and sort of talk to protesters on the street, I think they're quite adamant that they're not, um, they're not there for any political candidate. And in fact, uh, you hear diversity of opinions. It's certainly not pro Petro rallies, they're certainly not pro Fajardo re- rallies, pro Coalición de la Esperanza rallies. I mean, it's a, it's a mix. And similarly, I think you, know, um, you don't see a, a, a uniform condemnation. of of sort of one political party or another in in reverse of that. So I, I think that in many ways, the process will be the context for the 2022 elections, but I'm not sure that the elections themselves are driving that dynamic. Having said that, I really fear that it will be difficult to get out of the current situation before the elections because of the politically weak situation in which we find ourselves for this government, but also because of the politically weak situation for the National Strike Committee. So we have a negotiation right now in which both sides are in a very difficult position politically to compromise. The government, very low population, uh, popularity levels, just uh, based on the opinion polls, but also struggling with support within his own political base. Uh, So President think, has has really struggled to maintain that core of support, and then, of course, at at an electoral level, even less so. He lacks a coalition in Congress, so that means he comes to the negotiating table in in a position that makes him less likely to offer significant concessions. From a similar standpoint, I think the National Strike Committee is also weak in their negotiating position. They're weak, first of all, because their demands are so diverse and they can't speak with a unified unified voice. But second of all, because there are many protesters who say they don't feel represented by the strike committee, and therefore it's difficult to know if the strike committee can really deliver the protesters. So for example, if they promise to do XYZ, if there's an agreement tomorrow, it's not clear to me that the strike committee has the ability to change the dynamic on the ground. In some places they will, but not in all places. Now, I think we do have a sliver of hope, uh, actually in the last 24 hours because there has been a softening in some of the regional roadblocks. And this is a result of discussions that happened, interestingly, not at a national level, but at a departmental level. Uh, In the strike at the moment, there's a national strike committee, but then every one of Colombia's departments has a strike committee. And it's been in those spaces where we've had actually more space for negotiations with governors, with alcaldes, with delegations from the national government, but not necessarily the national government itself. And in those spaces, I think, where you've had a little bit of more flexibility to make um, you know, concessions and, and really because people are living the situation directly, there's also a will to be a bit more pragmatic. And um, that's a space where we've seen progress. And again, in the last 24 hours, we've seen blockades soften or lift in, lift in Catatumbo, in Cauca, in Huyen. Um, in Putumayo, Caquetá, um, Meta. So this is a situation that, that hopefully can gain momentum. I think that's happened mm-hmm. first because the the protesters have realized that blockades are, are really weighing on people, that they're becoming increasingly unpopular. But second, because there have been these local level negotiations that have more political flexibility than the national level dialogue, which really is tied in this electoral dynamic.
0: Okay, and in the meantime. The economy is suffering a lot, and a lot of people is asking. So, how can we get out of this crisis? And and I wanted to ask you, Mister Tevori, uh, how can the Colombian economy move forward to get out of this crisis with all this political thing going on in the territory and in the streets, and with a government so weak, as Elizabeth said.
1: I mean, I think these these things are are linked together very strongly, because mm-hmm. you know economic decisions can they don't exist in a vacuum from politics and from security, especially in Colombia. In Colombia, you have had a very um, a very uh, I don't, robust economy which uh, has been able to to work in, in spite of countless Escobar and bombings uh, thirty years ago. FARC, terrorism, um, and, and ELN terrorism, the 10 years, for, uh, 12 years, 20 years ago. And um, Nowadays, I think we have, I, I was watching now, uh, looking at the uh, poll by Centro Nacional de Consultoria that asks the following. Uh, do you consider that in this moment, Colombian democracy is in danger? And 68% of people, so th- m- more than two out of three people think yes. So two out of three Colombians, according to this poll, says the Colombian democracy is in danger. And uh, there, there's another, another question, which is, is there a crisis of representation? So 71% of Colombians don't, don't uh, uh, so, uh, are not affiliated or don't feel represented by any political party. So the, the problem here, Camila, is that we have a problem of governability. Uh, Moisés Naim wrote a book every, uh, some 10 years ago, something like that, the Venezuelan thinker called the end of power. And what we're seeing now is kind of that, not only in Colombia, in the US, in France, in Spain, in Italy, in Chile, in Ecuador, is power is not what it used to be. So the economy is will now be acting in, in this vacuum of power and we're seeing an epochal shift, an epochal shift in which power now with, 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 this, with, with cellular phones, you are able to convoke very easily, a demonstration and strike in 10,000 people, 20,000 people show up in the street. Ten years ago, 20 years ago, you need a political uh, uh, movement, you need an organization. Nowadays, is this spontaneity, and um, that can uh, bring a, any government to its knees, and and they can feed this 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 a uh, governability crisis for 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 weeks, for months. We saw it in Hong Kong for more than a year. We saw it in Paris for almost a year. We saw it continuously in Chile, and and then uh, how will uh, how will the economy uh, will learn to work in this situation in, in Colombia? What we see, and I think uh, Elizabeth was was very vocal and very eloquent in saying, look, there is spontaneous vandalism, this political vandalism, and this criminal vandalism, and the uh, the uh, economic actors. First, workers and employees, on the one hand, they cannot go to work. As I said, uh, uh, inputs they cannot get to, to to the to the firms and to the to the uh, factories, and the, the the final products cannot get to the consumers. So you impose a huge suffering on a country, and politically that becomes unsufferable, and then economically you start seeing uh, the the crippling of the economy, bringing it down. So I think it is is a very Insecure, very uncertain situation in which the, the capability of the actors that go against the order and the capability of the of the government trying to impose a in the middle, the police situation that you that you mentioned here. Of course, the police, the all the attacks to civilians are unacceptable are, are and all the violations on human rights are unacceptable. But you have also to, to think of, of policemen in the street. In, in a court, in a situation when there is the, this mixture of criminal, political and spontaneous vandalism and, 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 and there's this policeman there, they have to act, of course, following the, the strictest uh, uh, standards of human rights uh, respect um, but very complicated situation. So in this situation, what I see is first the government and the, the state uh, losing most of the, or, or strong parts of its uh, capabilities and the economy system, so the, the firms and workers and capital and financing and debts, etc., uh, uh, starting working in a, in a very uncertain situation that basically creates a downward spiral for the country. So uh, mm-hmm. it is a very, very, very complicated situation uh, uh, that, that will end up, uh, and I, I will finish with this, uh, that that very, uh, very ironic, for instance, Young people are, stri- are, are demonstrating because they need more jobs. We will end up in this, this crisis with le- even fewer jobs, thousands or probably millions of fewer jobs. Second, they strike because the tax reform probably was going to increase the prices of food, 20%, 19% because of the VAT, right? Now the price of food went, went up 50%, 100%, 200%, the price of potatoes, the price of uh, eggs, the price of milk. Right, the increase. So it's very ironic. The 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 demonstrations ended up having uh, the impact of less jobs, higher prices to to middle class and poor class people. Uh, uh, So uh, we we ended up in a in in a worse in a worse situation than we started in.
0: There's people asking uh, a question that I think a lot of uh, Colombians have, and also a lot of people outside the country. And it's if this situation, uh, Mr. Echeverry, will lead to a Petro presidency. People is asking and wondering if what we're living right now will lead to Petro win the election next year.
1: I think it's very uncertain. I I don't think, as Alisa had said, and Paul as well, people are not really politically affiliated in these protests. People are in this, I was in Cali and I was in Medellin, and young people are in this belief of everybody, everybody. Nobody can say, I am now receiving, no, I am now the, the beneficiary of these. Uh, politically, people are, are kind of fed up of everybody. People are suffering. People have been suffering for two, three, four, five years when the country economy started like, the, like flattening after a period of 10, 15 years of, of, of growth. It was exactly the same in Chile. You see in Chile, the economy was growing. In 2015, 16, the, the economic growth flattened and then people felt uh, the situation. It, that can even be the, the, the case in any country. China mm-hmm. needs to grow in order to keep its people quiet. So politically, I think not, not even, not the, the government is suffering politically horribly. Uh, the, the, the Let's say center-right or right-wing parties are suffering. And the center left and left-wing parties are suffering as well. People, the whole political system is not, is is being part of the culprit first and part uh, and holding the blame for many of the things that are happening. So professional politicians are not, are not, uh, I I don't think Petro, which is actually the question. I don't think that Petro can necessarily uh, uh, benefit The, the middle class probably who's, People who are still holding a job, which is not right, P- people who cannot get to job to work. I, I was talking to a drag, taxi driver in Colombia, eh, in in Bogota last week, and she was angry, angry at everything. She wasn't, she wasn't pro anything. She was really angry, even angry at, at the protesters. Right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> she
1: was driving the taxi driver. So it, nowadays, I don't think nobody can claim that this is politically good for him or for her.
0: Elizabeth, what do you think about that question that everyone is wondering? Is this going to lead to a presidency of Gustavo Petro or not?
3: No, I, compl- I mean, I completely agree with with what Juan Carlos just said. I mean, I think there's, there's advantages and risks from both sides. I think Petro kept a distance from the protests, specifically because he was very concerned about the risk that he would be associated with chaos that has emerged from the protests, which could hurt him. Um, and so, if the if the image sticks that what a Petro presidency would would lead to is a situation of blocked roads and protests and burning tires, of course that's not going to help him electorally because he has to win more than just his base in order to to move forward. That goes the other way as well. I think you know um, uh, he, he, the. This has brought forward so many of the sort of, um, I guess, traditionally left wing political demands, such as redistribution, basic rent, broader government support for higher education, things like that. You could argue that it might support those candidates, but I think the the jury really is still out. And again, this is a judgment of the entire political class. I think, you know, something that was said to me on on the streets in Cali the other day, I think maybe brings it home, which is that A young man said to me, it says something, it's a reflection of Colombian democracy that being here on the street is the only way we feel like we can be heard and participate in the system. It's also telling of the situation that, for example, the strike committee at a national level does not include anyone from the street. There is no voice that has risen organically from these protests to represent them in higher leadership, and this is reflective of sort of this elite dynamic that we all just talk to our friends and familiar faces, and we can't actually open up participation. I think that's really at the core of what we're seeing here. And none of the establishment political figures have been able to to speak to that in a way that's convincing.
0: We're holding this conversation in the Colombian American Association. And that's why I think this question that I'm receiving right now, it's important and I wanted to ask this question to Paul. Paul, I have a, a person sending me this question. And it's, what is the role of the United States in this whole context? What is the role the US should play in the situation we're living right now in Colombia?
2: I mean, I I think um, the United States is the sort of Colombia's longstanding democratic partner in the hemisphere. Uh, President Joe Biden has described Colombia as uh, the most uh, important strategic partner or foothold of the United States in Latin America. Uh, and so I think that you know, looking beyond the, the Paro, I mean, I don't think that the United States has a specific role necessarily to play in the Paro, but I think uh, that just in terms of, of solidarity with uh, the Colombian people is, is sort of the stated or, or inherited policy um, for the US government uh, across administrations, regardless of whether or not there's a Democrat or Republican in power here in Washington, DC. Uh, there's broad bipartisan support for Colombia as a democratic partner and, and, and especially as a security partner. Um, I would say that, you know, more broadly speaking, when we think, think about what, uh, given given the importance of the security sector and, and the Colombian military and police to uh, the U.S. government as partners, in just a couple of years ago, the Colombian military was uh, invited to be the only Latin American partner nation uh, that that, that, that uh, invited to be a, a partner to to NATO. Um, you know, it, it's, it's preser- preserving and building on, on that relationship, and I think given the, firstly, the, the Biden administration's um, uh, legacy, have, uh, having many members of the Biden administration uh, help um, oversee or usher in a period uh, immediately following the FARC P- Par- peace accords uh, with the implementation of Peace Colombia, which is a major bilateral initiative to help uh, finance the implementation of the FARC peace accords, uh, I think that, that is going to be a big part of, of the Biden administration's uh, policies towards Colombia going forward uh, and and really reinvigorating uh, the, the the support for 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 the, the implementation of the peace accords and the revitalization of rural economies um, you know likewise I would say that uh, the. US can, can play a helpful role in helping the military and police uh, engage in, in, in agenda setting in preparing for the really difficult kinds of roles that the security forces have been asked to play or perform uh, in, against the backdrop of, of you know, a post-conflict period, while you also have illegal armed act- actors still um, inhabiting parts of the countryside and engaging in illegal activities, while also contending with social protests. Um, you know, I, I, and I, so I think that the United States would remain an important security partner in that regard.
0: In the past, the US got involved with Latin America trying to keep a certain political and economic model. I'm not saying that that how it should it be, but that's what happened in the past. They were involved in Chile, in Central America, and so on. And now that we're seeing people trying to change the economic model in the continent, I wanted to ask you, Mr. Echeverry, do you think that here, the National Strike Committee have that uh, goal at the end that they want to change the, the the economic system that we have.
1: I want to to answer, but first to give a follow up to to Paul's uh, uh, to your question. Of As course. As I see it, uh, the, the, the we, we have Colombia in the middle of two pressures, right? Mm-hmm. One from the from the east. Uh, from Venezuela with the Cuban, probably Russian and Iranian support. Probably, I'm saying, I don't know. I'm not an, an expert in that, probably. And from the West, you get the, the Mexican cartels, narcotrafficking nar- cartels from the West. And then Colombia is like in the middle of a, of a very complicated international situation. Colombia is, the, is with Mexico, probably the, 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 the best partner of the US. And in the Caribbean, if you see the, the, the Caribbean, you see, Cuba, you see Nicaragua, you see Venezuela. Colombia is in the Southern Caribbean is the, the most important partner of the US. So it is critical. The US international policy is now like looks not North South. They don't look at Latin America, right? The only thing that is really important for the US in Latin America is Honduras, Nicaragua, and El Salvador because of the of the Southern border situation. But mm-hmm. we, Colombia, is at a crossroads uh, a moment, uh, because it's, it's in the middle of this of illegal pressure from the from the West, from the Pacific, uh, and the, the, the narco-trafficking uh, cartels, and, and and then these strong uh, geopolitical forces uh, uh, that materialize in Venezuela via Cuba and, and these other. So Colombia is critical, and the situation for Colombia in the next 10, 20 years is critical, I think, for the US, and what would, would probably justify a, a, a more serious involvement of the body administration. Having said that, <laughs> <laughs> now I come to your question. Uh, no, is that- no, but,
0: but, it, but it, it's related because if we are between two forces and we're also one of the forces is coming from the East, that means like a change in the political and the economic model, not yeah. only in the economic, but in the politically. So uh, do you think we're, we have a pressure right now going through that path? Because that's what we are seeing in Chile. Chile yeah. is going to change their, econ- their economic model, no, no doubt. That's what's going to happen there. Yeah.
1: But look, le- let me give you just a purely economist's response to this person. Okay. <laughs> yeah, which is, let's say you have the state in the middle, right? You have social demands rising, right? And the economy capacity going down. So in the middle is the state. The only solution is populism, right? So be- because is people want more, but you have less. So you print money and you do all this. So I, I think that we're seeing the, the Argentinization not only of Colombia and the whole Latin America. Even the IMF is supporting that. Is go get a lot of debt, say yes to everything. No, it doesn't matter that your economy is collapsing. It's okay. You got no print money, go to debt, go to New York, go to Washington. We will give you money. You will pay, you will pay at some point. At some point, you will default. That's what will happen. At some point, you will default. So the IMF and, and, and the World Bank and the institutions that I have, I know very well, and they used to be very credible, are now in a crossroad. <laughs> yeah, because these, these guys are, are, are promoting uh, basically the, the very complicated populistic solution, which is, yeah, your economy is collapsing, but spend more. I don't say that is an easy way out of this situation, right? Because yeah, people are in hunger and the economy is not producing more. So in the middle of that, what you say Camila is, is this going to lead to a new different economic model? Definitely, okay. uh, especially especially for countries like the Pacific countries, Chile, Peru and Colombia, uh, and even Mexico, which have been so far the Pacific, the so-called Pacific Alliance, we have been or have been trying to produce a more like stable economies with good macroeconomic management, et cetera, et cetera. This probably lasted until now. Let's say the, the Washington consensus, which was an stability consensus. Now it doesn't hold anymore. Probably. Is that, is that people like me, we have been trying to, to during 30 years, 40 years to generate the most stable economies, uh, uh, possible in Latin America. I think Chile was very stable. Peru was kind of stable. Colombia was kind of stable. Mexico as well, but probably we will be more similar to the Atlantic countries, uh, in which in which you issue more debt, enter into financial problems every ten years, and, and then there's a downward spiral. I I I, I do fear that a, from a very purely economic point of view, we are we are sliding towards a more uncertain and um, less serious economic management, eh, absolutely.
0: We don't have that much time left. I think we have like three or four minutes. So I wanted to ask to all of you, like a last question. So how we get out of this, Elizabeth, I'll start with you. You have been in the streets. You already said what you have seen, what should be done. We have elections next year. And you said that you thought that these might continue until we have the presidential election in May 29th. So what should be done to get out of the crisis? What do you think? Uh, well, it's, it's, uh,
3: I'm very glad to go first in this impossible question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, <and> I know.
3: <laughs> Look, I mean, I think, I think the, the exit isn't clear yet. However, I think there are some elements maybe that we can say will have to be part of it. So I think one of the things that's very clear is that this is going to have to be a negotiation that's layered. This cannot just be a a central government talking to labor unions discussion because neither of those parties can deliver an agreement at a national level that's going to stop this crisis. Uh, It just can't have a centralized solution. So I think you need to have sort of an articulation down to department level negotiations, municipal level negotiations. It could even be neighborhood level negotiations. You know, it's truly amazing. You visit some of these protests in Cali, in, in, in Bogota and they have their own ecosystem really. That's going to require sort of local government having you know, discussions, getting to know them, what do they need, what, are they, what do they want, and sort of slowly unraveling the process. I think what's missing from that, because many of the elements are actually in place, which is, I guess, good news. Uh, you have department-level uh, strike committees, you have local um, pliegos, which are basically sets of petitions from different departments, from different municipalities where people are on the streets, much of it is actually on paper. So you at least know sort of what where your targets are. Um, but what's missing right now is um, let's say political will from the central government to, um, to give a, an, an impulse, let's say, to that, to that broader dialogue. So right now, local mandatory holders, for example, will tell, uh, tell us, you know, alcaldes uh, say, we don't feel empowered to have these negotiations because we don't know that the government won't come after we've agreed to everything and blow it up in the sense that they say, no, you can't do that, you can't do that. They're not involved in this, this local level, which means that there's no coordination. So I think you really have to, you know, make this vertical. Uh, from all the way to the bottom all the way up to the top and you need to make sure that those are they're all talking to each other. Uh, I do think that the second piece of this is exactly what Paul spoke to so well, which is that there has to be at least an acknowledgement that this relationship between the community and the police is broken. And it needs to be fixed that people demand more accountability, Uh, a policing system that's really built around community security. Look, the police is an institution that's extremely functional at exactly what it was built to do, which is counter narcotics, anti-criminal activity, looking for insurgents. I mean, these things are is a very strong institution if you if you judge it by those indicators, but that's not the function that it has today on the streets. And so there needs to be this sort of shifted mentality. And it's not just retraining, it's really an institutional shift that at least needs to be on the table to be discussed. I think for this to have a credible exit strategy. Those to us, I think as crisis group would be sort of the main components going forward. But a final thing maybe to say is that, you know we've really been missing political courage in this crisis. No one has been willing to take hard decisions, no one. And I say that categorically across the board. There is a lack of political courage to get out of this crisis. And without that, I do think that you could have a sort of churning situation that fails to really move forward in any one direction or another.
0: Elizabeth, but you said that there's a lack of political courage, and I have a question from the audience, and I wanted to ask you then that question. This lack of political courage that we have seen during this past month, do you you think it's due to Duque's lack of experience? or maybe his lack of leadership? Look,
3: part of it is the electoral situation. Part of it is that no one really has any good ideas. Uh, part of it is just a, a question of characters and, and people and broad sets of interests that no one really feels like they represent. But we really are missing this, this sense of leadership. Uh, first from the government, truly. Uh, but second also, I think from, from the street that there isn't a strong voice who can really call together this movement. Um, and that puts us in a very hard, situation because there isn't a unifying voice that can speak uh, to, to what one side or the other is able to deliver, let alone what they want to deliver.
0: Paul, I know as Elizabeth said, nobody has the answer. We are like discussing right now, what is going on in Colombia and what should be done. And nobody has a unique answer, but I want uh, your point of view in this brainstorming. How sure can we not. get out of this crisis?
2: I, I would agree with everything that Elizabeth said, and I think that the most important thing is actually ensuring that the, the spaces for dialogue are happening at various levels of government. I mean, Colombia evolved and formalized a decentralized unitary system, starting dating as far back as the 1980s, but I think what we're really seeing is a failure of that system to 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 breed the kind of Represent, representation uh, that that makes people feel like they're a part of democratic processes. So I think that inevitably has to be a part of this. And, and my only other hope in this regard for Colombia is that um, you know that both the government and the 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 oppo- and, and its opposition, both political opposition and, and the opposition that it, it faces in the streets, find ways to 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 depoliticize the 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 tenor of of the the conversations and, and the dialogue. Um, Because I, you know, I just fear that the the extreme polarization of Colombian society is going to leave Colombia without very many good options looking uh, Firstly into 2022 but then long into the future. Uh, And so to the extent that we can have conversations about very pragmatic solutions uh, For the demands that are being made of the government. uh, I, I, you know, I think that that not only serves serves Colombia uh, and the Colombian people in the long run. Uh, but I think it, it's, it's, it represents the best opportunity for Colombia's longstanding democratic institutions.
0: Thank you. And uh, Mr. Echeverri you go last in that question that is gonna be our last uh, thing we said today.
1: Thank you, Camila. I, I think that all crises are crises of leadership. I, I have been like uh, uh, working in crisis for the last 20 years and basically we definitely need a a strong leadership and and use the crisis to get out of the crisis. What you see now, for example, you have to involve anywhere. The the, the economy, the economy, the basic entrepreneurship of Medellin, Bogota, Cali, they feel like solve the problem for me. That's not the way it works. Uh, Colombian economy nowadays is not big enough to solve Colombia's problems. That's it for me, that's the main issue. You have to create a new economy if you're gonna solve this problem. The economy now, it doesn't have enough money to pay for, for all the demands that are in the streets. Is that unsolvable? No, that can be solved, but you have to create a new economy. You have to ask the people to invest in, for example, I have been saying that to in many places, ask people to invest, in, to invest in Cauca, in Nariño. There are so many business possibilities in poor Colombia, in the whole region. Of the Caribbean, coast, the Pacific, coast, the southern part, uh, involve everyone. Show that there are loose, loose situations, and the second element not only change your fundamental understanding of what, how the economy have to solve this problem, but change state efficacy. The state efficacy of Colombia is very bad. This is a dysfunctional state. Elizabeth was describing it as verticality, right? Is 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 Colombia's state is is it nothing. It's like a, a a nervous system where you have something in your finger and you don't feel it your brain, right? Is you don't have the, the nervous system, doesn't connect, doesn't connect. So you, the brain doesn't solve this problem. So they sign something. Okay, we sign something in Cauca, but no, nothing happens in the column in, in Bogota to solve the problem. <laughs> 10 years after Bogota is, oh, oh really? Have you been signing this? You still have that problem? What schools, roads, credit? Uh, you have a healthcare unit in, 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 in Cauca, in a in, uh, Macizo Colombiano is full of Coca, etc. And then the state capacity has to be changed. So I, I, what I would say is is there, there are ways to get out of this, but we have to change fundamentally the way we do things in, uh, right now in Colombia. And, and that is, involves not only, of course, the, the, the poor people, the students and the peasants and the labor unions, that involves the bankers, and the entrepreneurs and it's and substantially leadership, political leadership in, in our dysfunctional state. So I think this is really an opportunity, but we have to really, really rethink, go back to pen and, and paper and rethink the way we're doing things. So it doesn't work anymore the way we have been working so far in Colombia.
0: Thank you, Juan Carlos. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, Elizabeth. And to all of you that were connected to this uh, panel of the Colombian American Association, we hope that these answers and this discussion made you understand a little bit more what is going on in Colombia and what can be the solutions to the crisis we are seeing right now. So, thank you all. It was a great thank pleasure you, having this discussion. And uh, and bye bye.
1: Thank you, Elizabeth,
0: Paul. Thank everyone. you. Pleasure. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. Ciao, Lugo.